Section 12 of Astounding Stories of Super Science, September 1930. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Barry Eads. The Terrible Tentacles of L-472 by Sewell P. Wright. Part 2. The landing crew was composed of all men not at regular stations, nearly half of the Kalid's entire crew. They were equipped with the small atomic power pistols as sidearms, and there were two three-men disintegrator ray squads. We all wore menores, which were unnecessary in the ship, but decidedly useful outside. I might add that the menore of those days was not the delicate, beautiful thing that it is today. It was a comparatively crude and clumsy band of metal in which were embedded the vital units and the tiny atomic energy generator, and was worn upon the head like a crown. But for all its clumsiness, it conveyed and received thought, and after all, that was all we demanded of it. I caught a confused jumble of questioning thoughts as I came up, and took command of the situation promptly. It will be understood, of course, that in those days men had not learned to blank their minds against the menore, as they do today. It took generations of training to perfect that ability. "'Open the exit,' I ordered Kincaid, who was standing by the switch, key in the lock. "'Yes, sir,' he thought promptly, and unlocking the switch, released the lever. The great circular door revolved swiftly, backing slowly on its fine threads, gripped by the massive gimbals which, as at last the ponderous plug of metal freed itself from its threads, swung the circular door aside, like the door of a vault. Fresh clean air swept in, and we breathed it gratefully. Science can revitalize air, take out impurities, and replace used-up constituents, but it cannot give it the freshness of pure natural air, even the science of today. Mr. Kincaid, you will stand by with five men. Under no circumstances are you to leave your post until ordered to do so. No rescue parties, under any circumstances, are to be sent out unless you have those orders directly from me. Should any untoward thing happen to this party, you will instantly reseal this exit, reporting at the same time to Mr. Corey, who has his orders. You will not attempt to rescue us, but will return to the base and report in full, with Mr. Corey in command. Is that clear? Perfectly, came back his response instantly, but I could sense the rebellion in his mind. Kincaid and I were old friends, as well as fellow officers. I smiled at him reassuringly, and directed my orders to the waiting men. You are aware of the fate of the two ships of the patrol that have already landed here, I thought slowly, to be sure they understood it perfectly. What fate overtook them, I do not know. That is what we are here to determine. It is obvious that this is a dangerous mission. I am ordering none of you to go. Any man who wishes to be relieved from landing duty may remain inside the ship, and may feel it no reproach. Those who do go should be constantly on the alert, and keeping in formation, the usual columns of twos. Be very careful when stepping out of the ship, to adjust your stride to the lessened gravity of this small world. Watch this point. I turned to Dival, and motioned him to fall in at my side. Without a backward glance, we marched out of the ship, treading very carefully to keep from leaping into the air with each step. Twenty feet away I glanced back. There were fourteen men behind me. Not a man of the landing crew had remained in the ship. I am proud of you men, I thought heartily, and no emanation from any menor was ever more sincere. Cautiously, eyes roving ceaselessly, we made our way towards the two silent ships. 
It seemed a quiet, peaceful world, an unlikely place for tragedy. The air was fresh and clean, although, as Dival had predicted, rarefied like the air at an altitude. The willow-like trees that hemmed us in rustled gently, their long, frond-like branches with their rusty green leaves swaying. "'Do you notice, sir?' came a gentle thought from Dival, an emanation that could hardly have been perceptible to the men behind us. "'That there is no wind, and yet the trees, yonder, are swaying and rustling.' I glanced around, startled. I had not noticed the absence of a breeze. I tried to make my response reassuring. "'There is probably a breeze higher up, that doesn't dip down into this little clearing,' I ventured. "'At any rate, it is not important. These ships are what interest me. What will we find there?' "'We shall soon know,' replied Dival. "'Here is the Dorlos, the second of the two, was it not?' "'Yes.' I came to a halt beside the gaping door. There was no sound within, no evidence of life there, no sign that men had ever crossed that threshold, save that the whole fabric was the work of man's hands. "'Mr. Dival and I will investigate the ship, with two of you men,' I directed. "'The rest of the detail will remain on guard, and give the alarm at the least sign of any danger. You first two men follow us.' The indicated men nodded and stepped forward. Their yes-sirs came surging through my menorah like a single thought. Cautiously, Dival at my side, the two men at our backs, we stepped over the high threshold into the interior of the Dorlos. The ethon tubes overhead made everything as light as day, and since the Dorlos was a sister-ship of my own Kalid, I had not the slightest difficulty in finding my way about. There was no sign of a disturbance anywhere. Everything was in perfect order. From the evidence it would seem that the officers and men of the Dorlos had deserted the ship of their own accord, and failed to return. "'Nothing of value here,' I commented to Dival. "'We may as well—' There was a sudden commotion from outside the ship. Startled shouts rang through the hollow hull, and a confused medley of excited thoughts came pouring in. With one accord the four of us dashed to the exit, Dival and I in the lead. At the door we paused, following the stricken gaze of the men grouped in a rigid knot just outside. Some forty feet away was the edge of the forest that hemmed us in, a forest that was now lashing and writhing as though in the grip of some terrible hurricane, trunks bending and whipping, long branches writhing, curling, lashing out. Two of the men, sir,' shouted a non-commissioned officer of the landing crew, as we appeared in the doorway. In his excitement he forgot his manure, and resorted to the infinitely slower but more natural speech. Some sort of insect came buzzing down, like an earth-bee, but larger.' One of the men slapped it, and jumped aside, forgetting the low gravity here. He shot into the air, and another of the men made a grab for him. They both went sailing, and the trees— Look! But I had already spotted the two men. The trees had them in their grip, long tentacles curled around them, a dozen of the great willow-like growths apparently fighting for possession of the prizes. And all around, far out of reach, the trees of the forest were swaying restlessly, their long pendulous branches, like tentacles, lashing out hungrily. "'The ray, sir,' snapped the thought from Dival, like a flash of lightning. "'Concentrate the beams. Strike at the trunks.' "'Right. My orders emanated on the heels of the thought more quickly than one word could have been uttered. The six men who operated the disintegrator rays were stung out of their startled immobility, and the soft hum of the atomic power generators deepened. "'Strike at the trunks of the trees. Beams narrowed to minimum. Action at will.' The invisible rays swept long gashes into the forest, as the trainers squatted behind their sights, directing the long gleaming tubes. 
Branches crashed to the ground, suddenly motionless. Thick brown dust dropped heavily. A trunk, shortened by six inches or so, dropped into its stub and fell with a prolonged sound of rending wood. The trees against which it had fallen tugged angrily at their trapped tentacles. One of the men rolled free, staggered to his feet, and came lurching towards us. Trunk after trunk dropped onto its severed stub and fell among the lashing branches of its fellows. The other man was caught for a moment in a mass of dead and motionless wood, but a cunningly directed ray dissolved the entangling branches around him, and he lay there, free but unable to arise. The rays played on ruthlessly. The brown heavy powder was falling like greasy soot. Trunk after trunk crashed to the ground, slashed into fragments. "'Cease action!' I ordered, and instantly the eager whine of the generators softened to a barely discernible hum. Two of the men, under orders, raced out to the injured man. The rest of us clustered around the first of the two to be freed from the terrible tentacles of the trees. His manure was gone, his tight-fitting uniform was in shreds, and blotched with blood. There was a huge crimson welt across his face, and blood dripped slowly from the tips of his fingers. God, he muttered unsteadily as kindly arms lifted him with eager tenderness. They're alive, like snakes. They, they're hungry. Take him to the ship, I ordered. He is to receive treatment immediately. I turned to the detail that was bringing in the other victim. The man was unconscious and moaning, but suffering more from shock than anything else. A few minutes under the helio emanations, and he would be fit for light duty. As men hurried him to the ship, I turned to Dival. He was standing beside me, rigid, his face very pale, his eyes fixed on space. "'What do you make of it, Mr. Dival?' I questioned him. "'Of the trees?' He seemed startled, as though I had aroused him from deepest thought. "'They are not difficult to comprehend, sir. There are numerous growths which are primarily carnivorous. We have the fintail vine on Xenia, which coils instantly when touched.' and thus traps many small animals which it wraps about with its folds and digests through sucker-like growths. On your own earth there are, we learn, hundreds of varieties of insectivorous plants. The Venus flytrap, known otherwise as the Dionia muscopula, which has a leaf hinged in the median line, with teeth like bristles. The two portions of the leaf snap together with considerable force when an insect alights upon the surface and the soft portions of the catch are digested by the plant before the leaf opens again. The pitcher plant is another native of earth, and several varieties of it are found on Xenia and at least two other planets. It traps its game without movement, but is nevertheless insectivorous. You have another species on earth that is, or was, very common, the mimosa paduca. Perhaps you know it as the sensitive plant. It does not trap insects, but it has a very distinct power of movement, and is extremely irritable. It is not at all difficult to understand a carnivorous tree, capable of violent and powerful motion. This is undoubtedly what we have here, a decidedly interesting phenomena, but not difficult of comprehension. It seems like a long explanation, as I record it here, but emanated as it was, it took but an instant to complete it. Mr. Dival went on without a pause. I believe, however, that I have discovered something far more important. How is your manure adjusted, sir? At minimum. Turn it to maximum, sir. I glanced at him curiously, but obeyed. New streams of thought poured in upon me. Kincaid, the guard at the exit, and something else. I blanked out Kincaid and the men, feeling Dival's eyes searching my face. There was something else, something— 
I focused on the dim, vague emanations that came to me from the circlet of my menore, and gradually, like an object seen through heavy mist, I perceived the message. Wait! Wait! We are coming! Through the ground! The trees! Disintegrate them! All of them! All you can reach! But not the ground! Not the ground! Peter! I shouted, turning to Dival. That's Peter Wilson, second officer of the Dorlos. Dival nodded, his dark face alight. Let us see if we can answer him, he suggested, and we concentrated all our energy on a single thought. We understand, we understand. The answer came back instantly. Good, thank God. Sweep them down, Hanson. Every tree of them. Kill them, kill them, kill them. The emanation fairly shook with hate. We are coming. To the clearing. Wait. And while you wait, use your rays upon these accursed hungry trees. Grimly and silently we hurried back to the ship. Dival, the savant, snatching up specimens of earth and rock here and there as we went. The disintegrator rays of the portable projectors were no more than toys compared with the mighty beams the Kalid was capable of projecting with her great generators to supply power. Even with the beams narrowed to the minimum, they cut a swath a yard or more in diameter, and their range was tremendous. Although working less rapidly as the distance and power decreased, they were effective over a range of many miles. Before their blasting beams, the forest shriveled and sank into tumbled chaos. A haze of brownish dust hung low over the scene, and I watched with a sort of awe. It was the first time I had ever seen the rays at work on such wholesale destruction. A startling thing became evident soon after we began our work. This world that we had thought to be void of animal life proved to be teeming with it. From out of the tangle of broken and harmless branches, thousands of animals appeared. The majority of them were quite large, perhaps the size of full-grown hogs, which earth animal they seemed to resemble, save that they were a dirty yellow color, and had strong, heavily clawed feet. These were the largest of the animals, but there were myriads of smaller ones, all of them pale or neutral in color, and apparently unused to such strong light, for they ran blindly, wildly, seeking shelter from the universal confusion. Still the destructive beams kept about their work, until the scene changed utterly. Instead of resting in a clearing, the Kalid was in the midst of a tangle of fallen, wilting branches that stretched like a giant still sea, as far as the eye could see. "'Cease action!' I ordered suddenly. I had seen, or thought I had seen, a human figure moving in the tangle, not far from the edge of the clearing. Corey relayed the order, and instantly the rays were cut off. My menore, free from the interference of the great atomic generators of the Kalid, emanated the moment the generators ceased functioning. "'Enough, Hanson. Cut the rays. We're coming!' We have ceased action. Come on. I hurried to the still open exit. Kincaid and his guards were staring at what had been the forest. They were so intent that they did not notice I had joined them, and no wonder. A file of men were scrambling over the debris. Gaunt men with disheveled hair, practically naked, covered with dirt and the greasy brown dust of the disintegrator ray. In the lead, hardly recognizable, his menore awry upon his tangled locks, was Peter Wilson. Wilson, I shouted, and in a single great leap I was at his side, shaking his hand, one arm about his scarred shoulders, laughing and talking excitedly, all in the same breath. Wilson, tell me, in God's name, what has happened? He looked up at me with shining, happy eyes, deep in black sockets of hunger and suffering. The part that counts, he said hoarsely, is that you are here, and we're here with you. My men need rest and food. Not too much food at first, for we're starving. I'll give you the story, or as much of it as I know, while we eat. 
I sent my orders ahead, for every man of that pitiful crew of survivors there were two eager men of the Caled's crew to minister to him. In the little dining salon of the officers' mess, Wilson gave us the story, while he ate slowly and carefully, keeping his ravenous hunger in check. "'It's a weird sort of story,' he said. "'I'll cut it as short as I can. I'm too weary for details.' The Dorlos, as I suppose you know, was ordered to L-472 to determine the fate of the Falanus, which had been sent here to determine the feasibility of establishing a supply base here for a new interplanetary ship-line. It took us nearly three days, Earth-time, to locate this clearing and the Falanus, and we grounded the Dorlos immediately. Our commander, you probably remember him, Hanson, David McClellan, big red-faced chap? I nodded, and Wilson continued. Commander McClellan was a choleric person, as courageous a man as ever wore the blue and silver of the service, and very thoughtful of his men. We had a bad trip, two swarms of meteorites that had worn our nerves thin, and a faulty part in the air-purifying apparatus had nearly done us in. While the exit was being unsealed, he gave the interior crew permission to go off duty, to get some fresh air, with orders, however, to remain close to the ship, under my command. Then, with the usual landing crew, he started for the Falanus. He had forgotten, under the stress of the moment, that the force of gravity would be very small on a body no larger than this. The result was that as soon as they hurried out of the ship, away from the influence of our own gravity pads, they hurtled into the air in all directions. Wilson paused. Several seconds passed before he could go on. Well, the trees. I suppose you know something about them. Reached out and swept up three of them. McClellan and the rest of the landing crew rushed to their rescue. They were caught up. God! I can see them, hear them, even now. I couldn't stand there and see that happen to them. With the rest of the crew behind me we rushed out, armed only with our atomic pistols. We did not dare use the rays. There were a dozen men caught up everywhere in those hellish tentacles. I don't know what I thought we could do. I knew only that I must do something. Our leaps carried us over the tops of the trees that were fighting for the, the bodies of McClellan and the rest of the landing crew. I saw then, when it was too late, that there was nothing we could do. The trees had done their work. They, they were feeding. Perhaps that is why we escaped. We came down in a tangle of whipping branches. Several of my men were snatched up. The rest of us saw how helpless our position was, that there was nothing we could do. We saw, too, that the ground was literally honeycombed, and we dived down these burrows, out of the reach of the trees. There were nineteen of us that escaped. I can't tell you how we lived. I would not if I could. The burrows had been dug by the pig-like animals that the trees live upon, and they led, eventually, to the shore, where there was water, horrible bitter stuff, but not salty, and apparently not poisonous. We lived on these pig-like animals, and we learned something of their way of life. The trees seem to sleep, or become inactive at night. Not unless they are touched do they lash about with their tentacles. At night the animals feed, largely upon the large soft fruit of these trees. Of course large numbers of them make a fatal step each night, but they are prolific and their ranks do not suffer. Of course we tried to get back to the clearing and the Dorlos first by tunneling. That was impossible, we found, because the rays used by the Falanus in clearing a landing place had acted somewhat upon the earth beneath, and it was like powder. Our burrows fell in upon us faster than we could dig them out. Two of my men lost their lives that way. Then we tried creeping back by night, but we could not see as can the other animals here, 
and we quickly found that it was suicide to attempt such tactics. Two more of the men were lost in that fashion. That left fourteen. We decided then to wait. We knew there would be another ship along sooner or later. Luckily one of the men had somehow retained his manure. We treasured that as we treasured our lives. Today, when, deep in our runways beneath the surface, we felt or heard the crashing of the trees, we knew the service had not forgotten us. I put on the manure. I... But I think you know the rest, gentlemen. There were eleven of us left. We are here, all that is left of the Dorlos crew. We found no trace of any survivor of the Falanus. Unaware of the possibility of danger, they were undoubtedly all the victims of the trees. Wilson's head dropped forward on his chest. He straightened up with a start and an apologetic smile. I believe, Hanson, he said slowly, I better get a little rest. And he slumped forward on the table in the death-like sleep of utter exhaustion. There, the interesting part of the story ends. The rest is history, and there is too much dry history in the universe already. Dival wrote three great volumes on L-472, or Ibit, as it is called now. One of them tells in detail how the presence of constantly increasing quantities of volcanic ash robbed the soil of that little world of its vitality, so that all forms of vegetation except the one became extinct, and how, through a process of development and evolution, those trees became carnivorous. The second volume is a learned discussion of the tree itself. It seems that a few specimens were spared for study, isolated on a peninsula of one of the continents, and turned over to Dival for observation and dissection. All I can say for the book is that it is probably accurate. Certainly it is neither interesting nor comprehensible. And then, of course, there is his treatise on Ocrite, how he happened to find the ore, the probable amount available on L-472, or Ibit if you prefer, and an explanation of his new method of refining it. I saw him frantically gathering specimens while we were getting ready to leave, but it wasn't until after we had departed that he mentioned what he had found. I have a set of these volumes somewhere. Dival autographed them and presented me with them. They established his position, I understand, in his world of science, and of course the discovery of this new source of Ocrite was a tremendous find for the whole universe. Interplanetary transportation wouldn't be where it is today if it were not for this inexhaustible source of power. Yes, Dival became famous, and very rich. I received the handshakes and the gratitude of the eleven men we rescued, and exactly nine words of commendation from the chief of my squadron. You are a credit to the service, Commander Hanson. Perhaps, to some who read this, it will seem that Dival fared better than I. But to men who have known the comradeship of the outer space, the heartfelt gratitude of eleven friends is a precious thing. And to any man who has ever worn the blue and silver uniform of the Special Patrol Service, those nine words from the Chief of Squadron will sound strong. Chief of Squadrons in the Special Patrol Service, at least in those days, were scanty with praise. It may be different in these days of soft living and political pull. End of Section 12